We're continuing in this series titled About Jesus. Now the question might be why the Gospel of Mark? We're a brand new church. This is our fourth Sunday. Why are we going through the Gospel of Mark? Uh, I said this a couple weeks ago, but our mission statement for local church St. Pete is disciples who make disciples to impact the city of St. Pete for Jesus. And that's what we want to be. We want to be, and we are, disciples. We're followers of Jesus who long to make disciples of Jesus. And so I understand that in order to make disciples, we need to lead people by the hand to Jesus to see him for who he is. There's a lot of different opinions about Jesus, but we want to take people to the source Uh, wherever you are in your walk of faith, wherever you are in exploring Christianity or having, you know, maybe you've come today with a lot of questions and you're not a follower of Jesus. That's great. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Um, We want you to be here. Um, And for those who are followers of Jesus, the whole idea is that I I want to come alongside you and equip you with the tools you need to then bring the gospel of Mark to others around you whether it's a one-to-one conversation, whether you're sitting over uh, with uh, having coffee with somebody, um, just someone, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, uh, a family member who has interest in learning more about Jesus. And so the idea is to begin and lay a foundation uh, in the Gospels, and, and specifically here in the Gospel of Mark. That's why we're going through Mark. The title of the message this morning is Crazy, Possessed, or Something Else. And before we jump in, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would guide us today. We thank you so much for your spirit's presence. We pray that as we open your word and explore it, that it would come alive to us. Lord, help us to engage. Help us to stay awake and to engage this text, this passage. Lord, thank you so much for how you've revealed yourself to us. You've shown us who you are through your holy word. And most of all, through Christ. We see you, Father, through the person of your son, Jesus. So thank you that we get to gaze upon Christ today in Mark chapter three. Amen. Well, stick a label on people and then it doesn't matter what you do or who you hurt. Why? Because they aren't people anymore. They're thugs or they're crooked or they're ignorant. Whatever we've labeled them. Labels have a way of dehumanizing people. I'm rereading the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. Douglass escaped slavery and eventually became a prominent voice in the anti-slavery movement. So the atrocities of slavery and many uh, were done by those who profess Christ. They were carried out by slaveholders who labeled African Americans as something subhuman. And as a result, An untold number of injustices were carried out and justified. So behind a label, you often find fear and the desire to control. So how do people react to Jesus today? What labels are often placed on Jesus today? Mark has already told us his opinion of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 1. What has Mark told us already about Jesus. Mark believes that Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one, the long-awaited for Messiah. He's the Son of God. But it's the only place that he gives us his opinion. Throughout the rest of the book of Mark, we begin to hear other people's opinions, and we see their reactions. So here in Mark chapter 3, it's just filled with reactions and, and labels. 
what we find are groups placing their label on Jesus, trying to control him in their own way. Let's read about it. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave uh, the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins of blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The first thing I want us to see this morning is the reaction of the crowds and the evil spirits. I told you there's a lot of reactions here to Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples, most likely because of the opposition that was mounting against him. We see actually in verse 6 of chapter 3 that the Pharisees began to plot with the Herodians. So the Pharisees are this religious party within uh, Judaism with this earnest desire to uphold and guard the law of Moses. And they're teaming up with, of all people, the Herodians, which was a group who were on the side of King Herod, who was essentially a puppet king of the region under the control of Rome. These two groups are plotting how to kill Jesus. They don't like what he's saying. Jesus doesn't fit their categories. 
and they're plotting to kill Jesus. So he, Jesus withdraws, he withdrew with his disciples uh, to the lake. And as we're walking through the Gospel of Mark, it's important for us to just imagine the scene that we're reading about. Let's try to be there. So many gathered from the surrounding regions that Jesus asked for a small boat so he wouldn't be crushed by the crowds. So he's able to address them. So imagine the crowds are pressing in, kind of this, I imagine this amphitheater feel. Maybe there's a little hillside by the lake and here he is. He's got his little boat ready just in case they're pressing in too much. What is the crowd's reaction to Jesus at this point in his ministry? They're mobbing Jesus. They're flocking to him. It's kind of like a celebrity or a rock star exiting an airport, attempting to get into his limo. Crowds are pressing in. You've seen that on TV? You know, they arrive with their sunglasses. They look all cool, and the, the, the ladies are screaming, and everyone's just trying to get to them. But they've got a couple guys, you know, with the suits on, and they've just got the stiff arm. And they somehow, those guys, man, they do it. They just clear the way so that they can get into their limo. This is what I imagine was kind of happening on, on the lakeside. The crowds were pressing in. They were mobbing Jesus. By this time, Jesus has reached this celebrity status of sorts. The people are flocking to him because Jesus has been demonstrating his power over sickness and over diseases of all kinds. And, and these are clear signs of the kingdom of God's presence. Remember, Jesus' message is the kingdom of God the rule and reign of God. And Mark has already told us that Jesus is the Christ or the king. He's the anointed one. And so the king is on the scene and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he's showing signs of God's victory over darkness and brokenness through healing, through casting out of demons. And so the crowds are flocking to him. Along with physical healing came deliverance, power over the demonic, dark forces. And it shouldn't surprise us to see the amount of demonic activity in the Gospels. The forces of darkness are reacting to their greatest enemy, their most dangerous threat. The irony here is that the first place we see any, anyone or anything identifying Jesus as the Son of God is from evil spirits. Besides Mark 1, verse 1, the evil spirits are saying, you are the son of God. Now you might be reading this uh, and, and think, whoa, Darren, time out. Evil spirits? What's going on here? What, what, what's happening? Really? I want you to stay with me. I don't want you to get so distracted by the evil spirits that you check out. I don't think you should be surprised that we should be surprised to run into things that we don't understand. It happens all the time. And so as we read the Gospels and we're exploring them together, we're going to see things that really don't fit the categories we have. Now, you might be very comfortable with the spiritual realm and thinking about the spiritual realm, whether it's good or bad, whatever it is. But here, it's clear that if Jesus really is the Son of God, if he really is invading enemy territory, it makes sense to see the type of response that we get here from the powers of darkness. Don't mistake, though, the cry of the evil spirits as an expression of faith. Even though their statement is true, their intent is still evil. I believe what's happening here is that the evil spirits were attempting to control Jesus, at least his timetable of revealing himself, by declaring who he was. They're trying to call the shots, even in the face of defeat. 
It's an attempt to strip Jesus of his power. But Jesus isn't having it. He silences them again and again. So we have the crowds, they're flocking to Jesus like he's some sort of celebrity healer. And we have the evil spirits and they're saying he's the son of God, but on their terms. As we move on in this chapter, Jesus moves from the lake to the mountain. And it's a transition. He moves from the lake to the mountain and he's not, he's not camping. This isn't recreational camping for Jesus. But what he's doing is he's establishing something new. Now, let's check it out. Again, let's look at verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And then he appointed 12, designating them apostles. So point number two is that he is appointing, appointing of the 12. So we saw the reactions of the crowds, the reactions of the evil spirits, and then Jesus withdraws even more to the mountain and he calls those that he wants to himself and he appoints 12. Why 12? Why 12? See, what we're reading about actually here uh, is an event that would ultimately lead to what we're doing here, to local church St. Pete. Now, what do I mean? The gathering of the 12 would begin a revolution, would begin a movement like no other. Every Israelite knew there were 12 sons of Jacob out of which the 12 tribes of Israel grew. 10 had been lost seven centuries earlier when the Assyrians invaded Israel and carried them off. So the prophets of old, had, they, would, they would speak and they spoke of a coming restoration and, and many Israelites were looking for this coming restoration of Israel. They were waiting, eagerly anticipating this Messiah, this anointed one who would come and restore their nation. How would he do it? When would he do it? When would God intervene? So his disciples are probably wondering, is this it? Is this the restoration we've been waiting for? Here Jesus is now setting aside not eight, not seven, not 10, 12. The number is important. They would have to come to grips though with a revolution that would run counterintuitive to everything they had imagined. So Jesus appoints them as sent ones. Sent ones. That's what apostle means. They're sent ones. And there are identity markers for these sent ones. He says that they might be with him. He, he appoints these 12 that they might be with him. And years later, people would, would mention uh, when they saw the apostles and their boldness and their courage and the way they would proclaim Christ, they would, they would mention their power and wisdom and they would acknowledge that they had been with Jesus. That's the, in, the, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter four, the, the people and the religious leaders, they acknowledge these men have been with Jesus. So one of the markers of the apostles was that they were spending time with Jesus. I want you to think about the impact and the power of being with Jesus. That these men would have been with him for three years in his ministry, would have been observing his life. He would have been pouring into them. Think of the effects that that would have had on these men. What effect does it have on you to be with Jesus? To spend time with him. There's still a powerful effect that happens when we're spending time with Christ, when we're pressing into his word, when we're delighting in his presence. Do you long for that? It was a mark of apostolic ministry, a unique role for a unique group of men. But it's still a mark for our lives to be present, to be pressing into Christ's presence. The second thing that marked the apostles was that he was going to send them out. 
It's what the word means. Sent ones. Send them out to preach and send them out to have authority. This is delegated authority. Christ had all the authority and he was giving authority to the apostles that they might preach and that they might cast out demons. We even have a a, a list of of the, the names of the apostles, nicknames included, which I think is pretty cool. These are ordinary men, fishermen, tax collector. One is a member of a radical political party, the zealot, okay? That's his nickname. I'm sure they gave him a hard time about that. Uh, uh, The Sons of Thunder. Oh, yeah, these guys. Sounds like a rock group, you know? Others we know nothing about. We see their name, but we don't really have their story. These are ordinary guys that Jesus calls to himself, and he pours his life into, and he sends them out to preach, and he gives them authority over the demonic. They had a special, unique role unlike any other, and yet... Jesus is still calling people to be with him and to send them out. He's doing that today. He's calling you and I to be with him and to send us out. These men are the imperfect empowered for mission. And listen, church, you and I are the imperfect empowered for mission. Sinners saved by grace. Given a message of victory and triumph to declare, to celebrate, to explain, to herald this kingdom of God. Paul, calls, Paul says this way, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. He describes himself and Christians, those who follow Christ. We're just jars of clay. We're just, just vessels of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're ordinary, proclaiming the extraordinary. So Jesus' own personal representatives on mission for him have been equipped and called to preach and called to proclaim. That's who these men are. They had a unique role in history. They played their part, and now it's our turn. But let's let's not move too quickly away from that number 12 and what Jesus is really establishing on this mountainside a new people, a new nation that he's calling to himself and that he began this revolutionary movement through the 12. It's what the Israelites had been waiting for. It's just arrived in a way they didn't expect. Now you might ask, what in the world is is this doing here after the reactions of the crowd? Stay with me. Let's move on to some more reactions. But before we do, do you remember what I said? What happens with a label that you place on somebody? When we place a label on somebody, we're saying, we're really trying to control them. No one's controlling Jesus. No one is controlling Jesus here in this story. He's actually establishing a kingdom in the midst of all these groups that are trying to control him. The third point here today is the reaction of Jesus's family and religious leaders. So he moves from uh, the mountain to a house, and, the, and there's this crowd that's so large that his disciples can't even eat, which I think is really funny uh, that they would write that. <laughs> we can't even eat. It's just so real. So this is life. We can't even eat. 
So there's two scenes happening here um, that I I want you to see that are happening at the same time. So his family has heard about what Jesus is doing. They're concerned. They're on the move. They're trying to find him. They're they're trying to make their way to this house. But also the religious leaders are, are, are playing into this. So if this were a movie, you might see a split screen and these two scenes happening at the same time or one scene shifting to the other and back again. Uh, but let's, let's read this again in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him and they said, oh, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Let's talk about Jesus' family first. They went to take charge of him. The word there is what you would use if you were talking about arresting somebody. Oh, we've got to go take charge of him. I'm sure his brothers were like freaking out. And, and his mom, they're just like, we have got to do something. And here's why they wanted to go take charge of Jesus. Are you ready for it? You already read it? He's out of his mind. They were saying he's out of his mind. He's crazy. He's lost it. Something snapped. So we got to get him home as quietly and as quickly as we can. Because if he keeps talking this way, he's going to get himself killed. They were clearly concerned over the publicity of Jesus' ministry. They wanted to step in and do something about the way things had progressed. Listen, this is beyond embarrassment. This is fear. You ever try to downplay your faith out of embarrassment or fear? I have. It's a temptation, I think, for all of us. It's obvious Jesus' family members don't understand him yet. Not yet. He's misunderstood by those closest to him. Man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. Jesus understands where you are today. He was misunderstood by his family. And he's accused by the most respected men of his day. By the religious leaders. By the teachers of the law of Moses. He's accused of being possessed. You see, they had, they had given it thought. The religious leaders had given this thought. They had come down from Jerusalem. And they'd given their verdict, possessed. He's got to be possessed. So Jesus' authoritative teaching, you see, was a, it was a threat to the teachers of the law. It exposed their hypocrisy. It exposed their man-made traditions. It would overturn their systems. And at the end of the day, it challenged their authority. So Jesus wasn't fitting into their categories either. So the label they just slap on Jesus would justify them doing anything they wanted in order to control him, in order to contain him, in order to silence him. And do you remember what I said about labels? When we put a label on somebody, we want to control them. And it's usually out of fear. And this is what they're doing. Possessed. Possessed? Leading others astray? Working in line with Satan? The deceiver? Yeah. That's what the most respected men of his community were saying about him. Now his family, they think he's out of his mind. The religious leaders say he's possessed. They're claiming that Jesus is on the side of the demonic. 
that he's participating in sorcery and misleading others. He's one with the prince of demons. And so Jesus addresses this absurd accusation with an illustration that I think can be a little confusing about this strong man. He talks about a strong man, which really is, is, is Satan in this illustration, and a, of the strong man's house, which represents Satan's domain or the present world. And he talks about the vessels that this strong man has. These are victims that are held captive, but he talks about a stronger one that comes and binds the stronger man, the strong man. There's a stronger one in this illustration, and Jesus is that strong, stronger one. Let's read the illustration again. How can Satan drive out Satan? Verse 23. He's dealing with this absurd accusation. I'm not on the side of the demonic, he's saying. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, how can it stand? If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house, think Satan, in his house, his domain, and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Pause there. What did Jesus come to do? First John says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus is on the scene as the stronger man, able to bind up the strong man. What the deceiver has held captive for so long is being set free. The beginnings of this freedom is expressed through healings and deliverance, but Jesus' ultimate victory will take place through his death and resurrection. So God's kingdom is arriving. Captives will at last be set free. Now the irony is that the teachers of the law are the ones siding with Satan, the deceiver. They're not understanding. So Jesus calls them on it. He speaks of their willful rejection and slander, attributing his work to Satan. This is this, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is this unwillingness to receive forgiveness. And, and, and notice what's happening. This blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he's referring to the most religious of men. Some of the greatest sins could be happening among the most religious of people. Remember what I said about uh, American slavery? It was happening among some of the most religious of people. Well, it goes from Jesus' family to the religious leaders and back to Jesus' family again. And we find that Jesus is not being difficult here. His family finally gets to the house and uh, he's not being difficult by saying what he says in verse 31, but let's read it. Uh, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? He's not being a punk here. He's not just, he's not giving them a hard time. He, it's, that's not it. No, he's, he's, he's teaching us something. Is family important? Yes, it is. Does family have priority over our commitment to God's will? No, it does not. He's revealing the ones that he calls family. And he says, who are my mother, my brother, my sisters, those who do the will of God? How do you become a part of this new family that I've established, this new people, this new nation that began with the 12 the will of God. The work of God is this, to believe in the one who, who he has sent. Church, welcome to a family that transcends labels and boundaries. 
a family of imperfect people who have been with Jesus and who are sent out and empowered by Jesus and who find their greatest joy in doing his will. Welcome to that family. How often are we slapping labels on ourselves? Our identity marker might be found in the color of our skin, the car we drive, the career we have, the political party we belong to. But here Jesus is showing us we have a new identity marker, the family of God. Oh, and there are groups that have been trying to control Jesus and slap their labels on him, possessed, crazy, you're my celebrity healer. Oh, you're the son of God on my terms. And he's saying, I'll have none of that. I'm creating a new people and calling a people to myself who will do God's will. And I'm giving you a new identity. You're part of a family, my family. He's not being controlled. He's not having it. What about Jesus? Have you been trying to control or even silence him by placing a label on him? Let me explain. Good teacher. What does the label good teacher do? It allows him to be at arm's length and remain just that, a good teacher. What about celebrity healer? Well, if we put him uh, in that place of celebrity healer, it's, it's just using him for what he can do for you. Or son of God. Well, son of God. Now that demands something. That requires something of you. There's a lot of reactions to Jesus in this passage. I just want to close by asking this. What is yours? What's your reaction to Jesus? I I know we just quickly went through a very full passage that had a lot of things going on in it. But if we could just break it down very simply, it would be this. We see a lot of reactions to Jesus in Mark 3. We see a lot of reactions to Jesus in our day. What is yours? Do you see him as the anointed one, the king who came to establish a new nation, a new people, a new kingdom, one that would bring restoration and hope, but not on a physical level only, but on a personal spiritual level? And have you bowed to him as the son of God, as king? Or are you keeping him at arm's length as a good teacher, as a celebrity healer? What labels are you tempted to put on Jesus so that you can control him? Let's fight against that. We all can fall prey to that. Let's fight against that. Let's see him for who he really is and wrestle with that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage. There's a lot going on here. A lot of reactions to Jesus. But help us to see him in all of his beauty and glory and strength and power that he's established a people, he's called a people to himself, that they might be with him and a part of his family. And Lord, now here we are 2,000 years later and we're looking to him as savior. We're looking to him as king and we're a part of something. We're a part of his family, your family, Lord. We give you praise. Lord, for anyone here today who's been uh, maybe reacting to Jesus in a way that, Lord, uh, has kept him at arm's length. Would you meet them? Would you, Father, help them to lay down their fears and lay down this false sense of control and look to Jesus as their Savior? And all of us, Lord, would you keep us from smacking labels on him and trying to control or silence him or be embarrassed 
Lord, help us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.